Hi, this is Paul, and I just wanted to offer some words of reflection before I turn it over to Eugene for this episode of the Divided Families podcast with Tang Ha Lai. I think what kept on going through my mind while listening to this conversation was Tang Ha Lai's hope and positivity and optimism, and in other words, the sense of resilience after all that she's been through with her own refugee experience that I think just shines through in this interview and also in her work. And one thing that she said in particular of how she and her family uses humor and laughing and the sense of positive energy to overcome something as tragic as the refugee experience or uh, something as traumatic as family separation, I think was really powerful for me. So I hope you get as much out of this interview as I do. And without further ado, here's Eugene and Tang Halai. Exciting guest, Tang Ha Lai, who is with me on Skype from New York. Thanks so much for your time. You're so welcome. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm also really excited because a lot of our episodes are like lower energy and all of the interviews and things that I've heard of uh, with you and them are super high energy. So, Well, let's see what I can do about the energy level today. <laughs> all right. Um, so she's an author of children's literature and I actually came across her novel, which is kind of like a verse novel. It's a collection of poems called Inside Out and Back Again. I was tutoring a middle schooler recently who was reading it for school and that was about the same time that my friend Paul and I started talking about this podcast and I was like, okay, like we need to get this person if we can. So yeah, so super grateful to have you here. You're very welcome. And it's a story about a girl who was born and raised in Saigon and has to flee with her family to America due to the Vietnam War. It came out in 2011, I think, right? Um, 2010, 2011. Yeah, eight years ago. Yeah, so I really wish that these books were out when I was in middle school. So I think that's like a one optimistic thing to look forward to. Oh, I would say there are many, many books out now. Of course, you know, I'm not the best person to be in touch with that. Someone in publishing would know more. I just write. I actually don't know what else is out there. Just from school visits, I know that we have many, many books that are out there that will um, speak to all the diversity that's there. So it's a fun time to be alive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember when I was younger, though, it was just like Joy Luck Club. Yeah, that was the one book, right? Yeah, and that was if the you one. didn't like it, you were out of luck. Yeah, and at that time, I didn't really like it because I was like, I'm not Chinese, but this is all you have. So anyway, uh, it won the National Book Award, the Newbery Honor. I know a lot of listeners to this podcast are probably not middle schoolers, if any middle schoolers, but I think we can all gain from reading it. I gained a lot from teaching it. Um, and I think that if you have like a younger cousin, sibling or anybody, um, it would be a really good gift. I had a lot of fun reading the poem. Uh, it made the poems and it made me think a lot about the title. I felt like everything kind of came back to the title where it's inside out and back again. It alludes to the way that family separation or being a refugee it's like as much an internal experience as an external experience. That's kind of what uh, I kept coming back to as I was teaching it. As it's everything. You know, yeah. once once you've endured this, I would say inside out and back, everything pertains. It's a harsh experience. And I would say it would take you the rest of your lifetime to just process it. I mean, it is my story and it's been 45 years, but there are certain aspects that will be with me forever. So once a refugee, I just remain a refugee. It's in present tense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I don't know if we ever finish ever finish figuring anything out. But no, I remember exactly this one uh, scene that I was teaching, and as we were talking about it, we kind of discovered this. It was a scene where I think the girl's name is Ha, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, she's on a boat, and then mm-hmm. you kind of describe, and I don't remember the word exactly, but you describe the waves on the outside, but also her inner turbulence inside. Right. And uh, like, I think that was just really cool. Like, oh, like one of those nice teaching moments where both of us kind of clicked into it together. So anyway, oh, this is not an English class, but definitely check out. And, um, you know, it's really for anyone who just likes a good story. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, I wrote it as best I could. And then I um, I put it in this verse format, because to me, if you're thinking in Vietnamese, and that is what the, the narrator's thinking in, she's 10 years old, she just left Vietnam, and she doesn't know English yet. So she would be thinking in Vietnamese. And when you think in Vietnamese, to me, anyway you think in poem because the mm. language is naturally lyrical naturally it has a cadence to it so i've been going around the country trying to tell people why it's in prose poems because my next two books are not they're in straight prose because you know unless i'm inside the mind of a vietnamese thinking in vietnamese i don't need to use prose poems mm. i was going to bring this up later but i read um before reading that i read uh ocean vuong's book on earth we're beautifully gorgeous i read it after seeing him at the Asian American Literature Festival. And he kind of talked a little, he talked a little bit about Vietnamese and language and things like that. But I mean, I don't know, maybe looking forward, we'll have a lot of uh, really good Vietnamese poets. <laughs> maybe it's just in your language and in the blood. You have a new book. Uh, it's called Butterfly Yellow. It came out just this past September. Could you just tell us about that and give us a quick synopsis? That is my favorite book. Um, it's the book, you, you know, I poured my heart into it and it's um, what's considered YA, which is young adults. So it's a little older for an older crowd and they're passing it on to the adult crowd. It's a story I've been thinking about since I was a journalist 30 years ago. How do you bring about a story of someone who has endured so much horror that you can't actually interview her as a journalist? Because I don't think it's fair to splash someone's face on the front page and put her real name to it and then put her very, very personal story on the page. Mm Because I knew I wasn't going to approach it as a journalist. And it just took me forever to bring it into fiction. And it's a story about an 18-year-old girl who lived in Vietnam post-war for six years with the communists. And then she takes one of these, you know, she escapes by getting on one of those rickety fishing boats that we hear so much about. So she's a boat person. And of course, she encounters Thai pirates and endures all kinds of horrors on her way across. Then I decided to set the main action of the story in Texas, where she landed in Dallas and she's on a bus on her way to Amarillo without really speaking English. All she really has is her spunk. And she's going out there because she is going to reclaim her little brother, whom she accidentally parted from. And she thinks it's her fault that they got separated at the end of the war. And he was part of Operation Baby Lift, where they were lifting orphans out of Vietnam, even though he's not an orphan. I hear that plenty of people kind of just pretended to be or that, that their children were orphans so they could get lifted out. At least I know of two stories like that. And so then I just based it on that. And it, it really takes a look at healing. How do you heal from horror? And then my true focus was how do you tell that story without depressing every single reader on every single page? So then mm-hmm. I decided to make it funny. So then it's funny. It's a funny story about horror. And uh, so in order to do that, I had to play up the Texas angle and I had to bring in a cowboy wannabe. So he's this white boy. He's wandering through Texas and he gets roped into helping this refugee out and she doesn't really like him and he doesn't really like her at first but somehow they form this transcultural friendship and that's the heart of the story in addition to her relationship with her 
brother. Of course, in the beginning, he rejects her mm-hmm. because, you know, he left at five and without any reinforcement of anything that was Vietnamese, he didn't speak anybody with anybody in Vietnamese. He didn't see any other Vietnamese. And you forget. And she is there basically as a representative of his past. And somehow he's going to have to come back to it. And I managed to make that funny, too, because I just. I I think a refugee story in itself is already dire enough. When is there a happy refugee story rolling around at sea? There's not one. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to write about it, to me, for my sake, because I sit at my computer by myself for five years, I wanted to give it something else, give it to another angle, come at it from the back door so that I'm able to process it in a way that is interesting to me because I don't see a point of crying for 300 pages. Just to go back into that a little bit, especially because this is a podcast literally it's a podcast about sad stories you know um and we try i mean we try to make it fun here and there but also you know sometimes it's not supposed to be fun how do you balance that without going too much into the story itself well you know what first you just go ahead and just assume that it's sad right there's Mm. no other way to do it once you know that it's sad this is the way i approach any novel once i already know the tone what else are you giving me I look for surprises in a novel. So once I know it's just going to be pitifully sad, Mm -hmm. what else? What else can you do with it? And for me, you're going to have to bring in some kind of humor. Now, are you making fun of the person who went through horror? Of course not. But you can approach it in a way where you can still bring out the horrendous aspect of the novel without living with that moment on every word, on every paragraph, on every page. To me, that just makes sense uh, for me as a writer. Now, another person might say, might want to emphasize the horror and say, I will not lift you from this so that you feel everything she felt. Of course, again, my focus was on her healing process, not on the horror itself. So it just depends on where you approach it, what you want to do, and how much, and your own mental life as you're writing, you know, because you are sitting alone for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to make sure I was in a space that was interesting to me. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting because it's kind of how, you know, you can't just paint this entire life story, anybody's life story with just one color, one shade, right? And you can kind of choose which way to look at it. And I did want to go into your own story, which for those who are unfamiliar with you, but does it take distance to go into like to see it in a happier way or is it just kind of like as even during the moments you know there were these brighter periods and just kind of depends on how you frame it well i think in order to understand my humor you would have to know my background Mm -hmm. i was born into sadness immediately Mm -hmm. when i was one years old my father became missing in action we had two choices within the family my mother set the tone we could either sit around and hug each other every day and cry or we can say okay He's missing in action. What do you do? My mother decided to set the tone. She said, accept the fact that we know absolutely nothing more about him and then just hope one day we will know more. And we never do. We never have. And then you're still going to have to build your future. You're still going to have to do something with your lives. You cannot just sit here and cry. So then we chose the latter. And because we chose the latter and I was born into this home where there was already a sadness, but somehow... We didn't sit around and cling to each other and cried all day long, nor did we dismiss it. That's missing. We know that. Mm -hmm. And we did everything else to kind of just lift ourselves out of it. I'm the youngest of nine children. So, you know, there were eight others above me who kind of set an example of how to do it. They all went to college. They all did their thing. They all found their way. And so by the time I came along, it was just something else I also did. So because I came out of that background where humor was brought in. My brothers are just funny. I come from a family where we laugh all day long. So to me, it's very natural to laugh. 
in the face of tragedy. That's just what you do. And so I'm able to spin it constantly. And to me, it's false to constantly be sad because I've never known it. I was born into sadness. If you were from the outside looking in, you would assume that we sat around and held hands and cried at every dinner. Mm -hmm. But we did not. Knowing that, and because I was inside of that sadness, and I heard laughter inside of that sadness, I know that it is true that within sadness, you can bloom laughter. And so that's that's what I go with. So, I, you know, without that background, I'm not sure if I would approach a refugee story and put a, a funny angle on it. I might just be an outsider and go, oh, this is so tragic and sad, and write 300 pages of sadness. Mm-hmm. But because that's just not my experience. Everything you just said is really enlightening because when you were a journalist, uh, I'm like, kind of a journalist but not a real one but you know as I prepare these questions and kind of plan ahead I you have to kind of shape the story beforehand mm-hmm. like with your questions like the questions that you plan kind of shape the story um, obviously as I'm doing right now I'm gonna just change the questions as go we're speaking ahead. go 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 <laughs> I think that's yeah I think that's really informative just because you kind of see what you want to see and if you want to see sadness in then you're gonna you're gonna find it but it's also you that's looking for it not what the most prominent part of the story i think so i think that's pretty enlightening and actually the question that i was going to ask is also like you left vietnam when you were 10 as a refugee and then i was going to ask like is there a particular memory that sticks out to you during because 10 when you're 10 it's a long time ago like was there any big memory of your time in vietnam that sticks out to you and i guess when i wrote that question it was going to be pointed towards something like going to be something sad but now I'm i don't have sure. any sad yeah. memories of vietnam i know it sounds odd well, you know i visit a lot of schools and when i walk in the kids want me to be a sad refugee because mm-hmm. that's what they see on tv they always hear that refugees are sad and i said i have to tell you i had a lovely life in vietnam bombs were not going off on top of my head all right just because you're from a country at war does not mean you're fighting in it we were in the city the the fighting was away from the countryside at the point when i was there and mostly what i remember about vietnam are snacks i ate all day long apparently i i love the snacks i remember the food and i remember the fruit until this day my family were like fruit hunters we will travel the globe for fruit and so i remember food i remember laughing i remember the play on words that my brothers would have for vietnamese to english it was a joyful childhood as odd as that sounds and i would not be able to say that if i hadn't lived it you would think oh i was i was in vietnam doing a war and everything was sad and there was blood and there were guns I didn't see a gun. I didn't see any blood. So I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) As you visit schools, what is kind of the reception when they realize that you're not supposed to or you're not sad as they expect? Then, uh, Then I tell them that emotions are varied. You can't predict an emotion any more than you can predict a person. You're just going to have to meet them and find out what they're really like, because you can assume all you want before the meeting. But once they meet me and I explain, you know, and I just talk about myself, they go, oh, I, I see why she wouldn't be sad because it's almost impossible to be sad all the time. Just mm. like it's impossible to be happy all the time. Life goes in waves just as a narrative, just as anything else. I have sad moments and I have happy moments just like everybody else. And to assign a human being an entire life of just one emotion It's such a narrow way of looking at another person that I would caution against it because it's not going to happen. Just like any child, a baby even has happy moments and sad moments. So why would 
anybody else not have that same thing? So I think if we allow people emotional complexity, they just become much more interesting. What do you think is kind of the prevailing way that people see refugees? And then like, what do you think that it should be? If you turn on the TV, you know, I mean, refugees, I thought I was writing historical fiction. And then as soon as Inside Out and Back Again came out, boom, all this news was happening with refugees. And in Mm. order to fundraise for refugee causes, you need to present them as hopeless, sad people. Right. Running from a war, running from atrocities so that people would give money. So it's it's a it's a narrow narrative for a specific purpose. Somebody has an agenda there. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you're not so much there to advance complex humanity as you are there to fundraise. So that's one side of the refugee hood. Mm -hmm. And then the real refugees show up and sometimes they match the version you've seen on TV and sometimes they don't. And again, get to know them because chances are whatever it is that you're seeing in front of you would be so much more complex than what you've read. Because who wrote the story? A journalist. Was the journalist a refugee? No. The journalist probably went through a translator or maybe two translators in order to get the story and then typed it up under deadline, under pressure. So by the time it gets to you, probably 1% of it is 100% authentic. Okay. That's just the way it is. And that's the the nature of news gathering. So just know that whatever you're reading is just the periphery, like the shadow of the true story. And then when that refugee arrives, you know, I caution kids all the time. You know, they're, they're being taught so much about refugees from all these books, from all the videos that are going on, that when they see a real refugee, the tendency is to run up to this refugee and start spilling out all the facts that you know about this refugee, right? <laughs> you from Syria, well, I know that this, 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 and this, and then you're bomb, bomb, will you bomb, will you this, blah, blah, blah. Then you start rattling off these facts. Why? Because you're so knowledgeable by this point. You've studied it for six weeks and you feel really good about yourself. And I can guarantee you that this Syrian child refugee is standing there rolling her eyes going, I don't know where you get this stuff. Okay, that's not what I went through. But perhaps she doesn't have the English to say it, as I did not have the English to explain to my silly fourth grade Alabamian classmates that no, there were no tigers running in the jungle in Vietnam. (laughs) And no, bombs were not going off on top of my head. And no, I was not on that less helicopter to leave Vietnam. And no, I was not the the naked girl running down the the road, you know, who Mm -hmm. was in the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning shot. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, you when you have a little information, what you do is you take someone else who's in front of you and you start plugging that person into the tiny bit of information that you have. And that's just human nature. So I would say just take a breath, stand near that person, just smile, maybe say, hey, you want to sit with me at lunch so that person doesn't end up eating alone in the bathroom somewhere, and then just be quiet because that person will eventually say something. It might take months. It might take years. Whatever. Just let the person reveal herself to you when she's ready. And it's going to take some time, especially if you have language barriers. That's an issue. And then eventually you'll trade information. But bombarding them with things you know. But, you know, I can say until I turn blue. And that's exactly what's going to happen every time you get a new refugee somewhere. Because people are excited. They're excited with the little facts that they have learned. Does all of this feed into why you became a journalist or a writer? And what kind of happened for you to switch from journalism to like fiction? You hit it on the, the dot. When I when we were refugees in Montgomery, Alabama, 
a reporter came around and took our family picture and wrote a little story about us. And it was all overly gushy PR stuff like, oh, they are so happy to be in America. Oh, they're running from war and please everybody help them. You know, it's, it's the typical story that you would write if you're an outsider about a refugee. And they were quoting people uh, saying all kinds of things that we did not say because I don't know. I think the person just made it up. So then I, we still have that clip somewhere. It was in the Montgomery, Alabama paper. And I just knew I would grow up to be a journalist. I just knew that. And then I would somehow get past my immediate need to tell a story from my version and actually get to something that is more authentic. And then, you know, my mom is a poet, and uh, but she doesn't publish. She's a house poet. And she's been mm. quoting gorgeous verse lines to me all my life. And she ruined me for journalism because one day I decided that it was much more important to tell how the leaves were falling off the tree instead of talking about the body that's beside the tree, which is what I was supposed to be doing. And then my editor said, perhaps we can cut back on the leaves description and tell me about the body. And so then I knew, you know what, I'm going to go write about the leaves. So then I have to leave journalism. Besides, I have this natural tendency to make things up. And it's just it makes a bad partnership with journalism. So why did you end up going to Alabama in the first? So you were like the only family, your family was the only one or. Yeah, there were a lot in, in Alabama, that is true. You know, when um, after the war, the United States set up four refugee camps. One was in Camp Pendleton, California. That was very popular. That was mm -hmm. where the movers and the shakers of Vietnam mm -hmm. went there. And then there was one in Virginia, and it was near D.C. So I think the folks who wanted to be near politics or thought it was important to be next to the Capitol went there. Because in Vietnam, everything got done close to Saigon, at least mm -hmm. for the south side. So you want to be near a, a city. One was in Arkansas. I have no idea what sad folks ended up in Arkansas. But we ended up in uh, Florida. And because we were such a huge family, nobody would sponsor us. Because you can't leave the camp unless some American or come and sponsor you. And then we ended up in Alabama because one brave person who owned a car dealership, he came and he was looking for one refugee to work in his car dealership. And my brother was a mechanical engineer. And my mother looked at him and he took all of us because that's my mother. She's ma she's magical. And so we all went to Alabama and he ended up with this whole family. And of course, the sponsor had his own agenda. Everybody has an agenda. He was very active in his Southern Baptist church. And so he brought us all in and baptized us all. And it mm. made him look very good to the congregation. So again, he wanted to help refugees, but he also wanted to show his people that he could save the souls of 10 people. And then we moved to Alabama. <laughs> so what is a what is like sponsorship entail? Is it just like Well, they, to... they do they do that still now. First they help you find housing. So he he rented us a house. One of my brothers spoke English, so then we made sure the electricity was turned off. You know, just basic stuff that is so baffling when you land a new place. And uh, he helped register us for schools. He he made sure we went to church. He made sure we got um, hand-me-down clothing. He did a furniture drive. All of that would not have been possible without him. You know, just down to your pots and pans, where would it come from? It came from him. You know, mm -hmm. he, he said something at church and people started donating. So so we were very grateful. I mean, I'm certainly not saying that he didn't do a, a great job in settling us. But why did he do it is the question. So in the South, a lot of people were sponsored through churches or through people who, who were affiliated with a church. And so there weren't a lot of sponsorship, as, as far as I know, up in the North because they were more anti-war. 
right? They were more, um, there were fewer churchgoers, so they wouldn't have been affiliated with a church. So it's a double edge, right? On the one hand, the people who are helping you were turning you into Christians when you were Buddhist, which you just do mm -hmm. because that's what survival means. But the people who would never do that to you wouldn't sponsor you in the first place because they're not interested because they were mm. anti-war and you represent something that they don't want to have anything to do about. Probably they were pro-communist. I have no idea. But if you're really liberal and you're living in New York at that place, I just don't see you going around sponsoring a refugee. That's really confusing because it's not like it's anti-war, but you're not part of the war. Is why, why? I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a mess. That's why you, as soon as the word Vietnam comes up, everyone starts shaking because okay. you can't explain it. I'm constantly being asked by these um, eighth graders, so wh why was there a war? I'm like, uh, when you can answer that, you will have a PhD. Looking at this line that, um, and I'm sure that you've been asked about this line a hundred times, but it's the one, you know, no one would believe me, but at times I would choose wartime in Saigon over peacetime in Alabama. Now I see it a little bit differently because... As you say, like wartime in Saigon for you was not like, right on the combat field, right? So, right. Um, wartime in Vietnam was about snack. Mm -hmm. It was about feeling very, very smart in school. It was about being inside a language that I felt completely comfortable in. It was about family. It was about knowing that you belong simply because everyone looks like you, right? Mm -hmm. You walk out into the street and there was a legacy there, right? I went to a elementary school that all my brothers and sisters went to. to. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got there, the principal knew our family very well mm -hmm. and the principal happened to already to have known my dad. So there was this huge legacy that was there already built up. So I never felt like I didn't know who I was or what I was, who my family was or where I belonged. And I just assumed it was like that for everyone. Because again, if that is your world, that is your world. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until Alabama that I was shocked to find out that people do not think that I'm smart. And it was so shocking to me. You know, like if you just thought you were smart from day one and then suddenly you come to this new place and you can't express yourself, kids are yelling at you in the playground. From their ex facial expressions, you have a feeling it's not flattering, but you can't quite understand what it is they're saying. And then you get in class and it's English. It's a language you haven't learned. And uh, the only place you feel truly smart is math because numbers are international. Mm -hmm. And so... And then they come after you for that too. They're like, oh, you're good at math. And it's like, well... <laughs> I happen to like math. I see yeah. nothing wrong with liking math. Math was something that I recognized, okay? Mm. I happened to become a writer just because I worked so hard to learn this language that I might as well use it. Well, I guess that actually makes a really good transition because pivoting to the Butterfly Yellow, the new book, you talk a little bit about language and how language is used between Vietnamese and English. Oh, also, I think I forgot to ask this in the beginning, but did you say it was based on a true story? Well, I don't know if it's true or not, but I have cer certainly sat among people who have hinted at the many horrific things that have happened among the way across, but they would never come out and say it. Again, this is not a story you're going to put a name to. For example, it would be, you know, someone who would finally trust me. And then it would be a hint like I would never tell anyone what truly happened, not even my husband. And then I'm like, well, what 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 happened? And then it stops there. They're never going to tell you. And then I started reading journalism accounts of what actually happened. I mean, it's out there. It's a story that's well known. Thai pirates sexually assaulted women and routinely and they stole the gold and they killed the men. And they did this routinely. And people tried to bring them to court and it did absolutely nothing but it's such an ugly chapter that once people arrive safely in their new land they just want to forget and it's only nosy people like me that start digging it up 
and mm. I and I dug it up in a way that is as unintrusive as possible. I did it through fiction. So Hung represents the thousands of women out there, yeah, who went through hell to get mm. over here. Now, am I saying that every Vietnamese woman went through this? Absolutely not. But a good number of them did. Mm -hmm. But they're never going to get on this podcast and tell you because it's mm. not something they want to talk about. Yeah, I want to ask some question about remembering like importance of memory. And this kind of is a theme that comes up again and again. But do you think it is essential for us to remember or do you think it's just better to leave it and just let it? Well, it depends on the age group and it depends on how horrific the experience was. Let's say you were sexually assaulted and you just want to forget. Yeah, I think I think you will leave it there. But that is not to say that mentally your brain will let you forget. You might mm. be having nightmares, you might be having PTSD, and you might be showing the kind of mental illness that people can't name and because you can't talk about but something is going on. You're not 100% whole, okay? But you're still, you're not going to talk about it. And I can tell you that as refugees age, we're starting to see acute signs of mental, not mental illness, but definitely sadness and unacknowledged horror, okay? Mm. They can all use therapy, but I'm not sure if anyone will go, all right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's a private decision. Now, that takes care of the first generation. The 1.5 generation, which would be me, who came here as children, I didn't suffer those horrific experiences, but I feel close to them because I keep thinking it could have been me. It could easily have been me. If I weren't 10, if let's say I was 16, and if I hadn't left in 75 and I left later and I was on a little fishing boat, maybe it would have happened to me. So then I feel very close to it. Now, the ones who truly, truly are curious about it are the second generation they were born here they've only heard hints of something that happened and they want the memories right it's not their memory they mm. want their parents memories they want their aunt's memories but i'm not sure if they're going to get it because how do you get that out of the, that person when the person doesn't want to tell now, if the person wants to tell then there it is the story is out there but i haven't heard of a lot of people coming up to me and saying oh yeah my aunt told me that story it happened to her too it's not being told it's just being quietly swallowed up in this kind of internal sadness that's buried deep, deep inside. And I'm not sure when it will come out. So I think the way these stories will happen is the second generation, maybe the third generation, will do it through pure fiction, you know, through pure imagination as to what happened. And maybe they too have heard hints of it at the dinner table or late at night when whispers happen. And then they'll just have to build a whole world around it. So I think that's how memories happen. It, like the same way with the Holocaust victims, you know, the ones who actually went through the Holocaust with the tattoo on their wrist. They're not the ones running around telling the stories. They're mm. not the ones holding out their wrists going, look what happened to me. They very quietly live their lives. And it's the second, third generation that's digging up all these stories and writing about them and making films about it. And so I'm predicting something like that. This actually is something that I have been thinking about for a long time. And I haven't like sat down and written about it to like really wrestle with it yet. But you're smarter than me. So maybe you can answer this question too. Because while I was in Korea, so I was in Korea for two years teaching English and I remember, and I was there in like a program, so I had a lot of peers who were also in Korea with me, some Korean, some non-Korean. But a lot of us who were Korean or had some kind of like ethnic you know, connection, we tried to reach back for memories, as you say, but also there are always like 
painful memories. So I'm thinking about like for me, it was just you know war stuff because I'm not a woman. But for the woman, a lot of the women learned first learn about the comfort woman during Japanese occupation, and then suddenly they're like, oh, like I really need to learn about this, and like it becomes a central part of their time. Our program was a year long, so it becomes kind of a central time of their year. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but it was kind of like interesting to me why we do that, like because you're reaching into this like dark box of something that you mm-hmm. you want, but also like at first glance doesn't seem like something that you should want. Um, so I was wondering if you, and I know that it has to do something with grounding yourself in some kind of, you know, past, but do you have any ideas to like why that is? And I don't think that's something that can be answered really easily. But I think it has to do with one, empathy, because the stories you're hearing about could have happened to your mother or your grandmother. It's that close. So naturally, the connection is so close that you feel not only their pain, but you feel anger for them. And it is this anger that fuels you. It's this injustice that fuels you. Now, and then you're angry because maybe your grandmother and your mother never got to be angry. They simply pushed it away. Instead of feeling angry, they decided to pink cloud it, right? Just go on to a la-la life. And you're like, I'm going to be angry for you. So I think that is a huge motivation. You did not get to be angry. I'm going to do it. And injustice is a huge motivation. This is why everything happens. You know, when people are angry, things happen. And I think if you don't identify, I don't think the injustice would bother you so much. But again, these are your aunts. These are your mothers. These are your um, grandmothers. And so I think it is a chance to reclaim history, but it's also a chance to reclaim justice. And then it's going to fuel that next generation. And also now they have power. They have the English language. They may not have the native language, but they have the English language. And maybe they're in law school. Maybe they know someone who can write these stories and they feel empowered to do it. And so if the mother can't tell the story, I think the daughters will do it for. Yeah, I think that's true. Because you reaching back for it is not really, I don't think it's voluntary in a sense, because you learn about it and then it's kind of, oh, I need to know more. Yeah, it's just really interesting how that all works. And this is a that happening in real time right now as we are recording this but just going back to language a little bit for a moment for like Vietnamese English how important do you think it is for you know second third generations to learn the heritage language and why again it has to do with I don't even know if if as a child you know your level of interest okay like for Mm. example I speak Vietnamese to my daughter she answers me in English and I have no problems with that because what I'm doing is I'm giving her at least an oral exposure to Vietnamese so that she has the foundation. So if one day if she chooses to go learn Vietnamese, she'll be able to pick up the pronunciation. That's up to her. I don't know if it is helpful to force it on children. I do know of parents who have rules like inside the house, you will speak absolutely nothing but Vietnamese. And it works in the sense they do grow up absolutely 100% bilingual, you know, not just being able to hear it, but they can speak it. So I think it depends on many different factors, on the family atmosphere, on the dedication of the parents, because it is hard to make sure the mother tongue gets inside the brain. And I think children, when they are starting out, especially in middle school, there's this tendency, and I've seen it in all my nieces and nephews, there's this tendency to want to be like everybody else at the Mm -hmm. beginning of middle school. So you're not going to want to run around and speak in your native tongue Mm -hmm. because you, you just want to speak English like everyone else. But the interest will start right around high school and it will intensify by college. Mm -hmm. Suddenly in college, I've noticed my nieces and nephews are going back to their Vietnamese name because they were all born with an English with a 
American name and a Vietnamese name. They'll start calling themselves in their Vietnamese middle name and they'll have an interest to speak Vietnamese, right? So they'll mm. either take a class on it or something. Now, is it long lasting? I don't know, but there's at least an interest. I do know that there's a huge movement among Vietnamese Americans, Australian Americans, all the kids that were born abroad to go back to Vietnam to be entrepreneurs right now because the country is, is just one big business opportunity. So mm. you're going to see a lot of kids there. And while they're there, yeah, it would be very helpful to know Vietnamese so they are learning it. So then it has to do with the personality, right? I mean, are you curious about what, what happened before? I think the closer you are to your parents, the closer you are emotionally to them, the more you identify with what they felt at each stage of their lives, such as, you know, what were you doing at five? If you were in Vietnam, what were you doing? What were you eating? What were you saying? If you're that curious, then the chances of you learning that language will be very high. And again, it has to do with opportunity. If you're growing up in California, there are Vietnamese language classes that are offered every Saturday. It would be very easy to slip you right in there and you'd pick it up. And there are Vietnamese all around you. There are chances to practice it. But if you're growing up in Wisconsin as one of two Vietnamese families, I'm not sure if it's possible for you to, mm. to pick up the language, aside from the little bit that you hear your parents say. And who is to, to say that your parents actually speak Vietnamese? Maybe they came here at five. Mm -hmm. They're not going to speak Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. right? So then you would have to go back to your grandparents if they are around and mm. if they're living near you in order to pick it up. So we are almost 50 years after the war. It's getting harder and harder to connect to that, what I call primary source, right? That mm. very first group that actually experienced it all. And they're starting to die off. You know, they're, they, they, they're getting older. My mother mm. just hit 90. And so there's a huge project in California to record all this history. So that effort is there. But I think eventually we're going to see these experiences through imagination, through fiction and through films. That's where it's going to live on. Mm. If you were to pitch to somebody like why they should learn their native language or not native, but heritage language, how would you do that? Or would you say you don't have to learn it? I would say do it. And I, I, I would expand it and say learn any other language other than the one you're fluent in. Learn three languages. Learn four. Because every time you speak a new language, you become a new person. Mm. Your personality changes to fit with that language. Like I'm very handsy and emotional when I speak English. Mm -hmm. But when I speak Vietnamese, I tend to be calmer and, and suddenly much more reflective and poetic. I don't know why. It's probably from my mother. But I change, right? Even the, the way you view the world, even your word choices, everything changes. Your body language, everything. I almost feel like I should put on different clothes when I'm speaking Vietnamese because I, I feel it changing. Your DNA changes almost. Every pore in your body starts to change when you speak a, a different language. And so that is the closest you're going to come to having the ability to have multiple cells. And the, one of the reasons why I love being a writer is that this is as far as I've come to being able to read other people's mind. I just make it up. I just pretend like I know what goes on in another person's mind so that I can build characters. And to me, that is just a superpower that is so amazing That is that I would take it over flying. I mean, if somebody gave me a choice, you can mm -hmm. read somebody's mind and be that person and I completely get inside all the secrets that they keep deep inside mm -hmm. their soul that they can't even admit to themselves. Those are the best secrets. Or you can fly. I would totally pick the other one, the secrets, because I'm just naturally nosy. There's a short story that I read last night. It's a sci-fi short story by Ken Liu. Um, he's actually going to be on this podcast. Probably he's going to be out before um, this episode. But uh, I read a short story of his last night from his new collection. It's about 
like aliens who can fuse their minds. <laughs> like you can, nothing is hidden from the other person. So, um, oh, I would love that. Yeah, it's called Reborn. It's not the same thing that we're talking about, where it's like in a good way, but the idea is the thought experiment is still there. So yeah, so we're coming towards the end of time. Uh, I just had two ish questions. The one question that I had was in an interview for Butterfly Yellow, you kind of mentioned that there's a silver lining. And I guess this is explained a lot by the way that you explained your own upbringing in the beginning of the interview. But where does this optimism like where should this optimism come from for all refugees? Like I would go ahead and say that 99% of refugees are optimists are optimists. Why? Because that's what it takes to rebuild a life. Mm. Otherwise, I think you would just be so sad. Or even if they're sad, they put it away until they make it. And this is what I'm starting to see. They've made it. They got the big house. They got the big vacation. They got the cars. All the kids went to Berkeley. All the kids went to Stanford. Everything's great. Then out of nowhere, that past sadness slams them in the head. And they're like, what happened? Why am I not? completely satisfied and by now they're in their 60s and and they're just in shock why am i not as happy as i should be and then my thing is it's because you've been suppressing what you went through for years it makes perfect sense in order to make it so you know it's complex to be a refugee first you put away all your horror all your sadness so you can make it once you make it it all comes back and you're still gonna have to deal with it now people can choose to keep ignoring it or they can choose to deal but i think the first order of business you talk to any refugee that's out there is to just like hunker down and plow forward and that's what it takes and that's called optimism now is it healthy i don't know it is what it is people live the way they live what other choice do you have? It's called surviving. Because let's say you're a refugee, you just arrived, and you've decided now is the time to dig into your sadness. Now is the time to really try to work through all the trauma you've gone through. I'm not sure you'd be able to get out of bed and go get a job and start your life over because it's so daunting. So I can see why people just push it away. And maybe you push it away long enough, it never comes back. But, you know, human beings are complex. Things come back all the time. You think you've gotten over it and then you haven't. And so I, you know, I I just predict lots and lots and lots of of therapy for many people as they age. I think you would like the short story, even if it's a little bit. The short story is a little bit dark. um, And again, it's called Reborn. I can send it to you after this. But yes, um, but it has to do with like memory. And if I forget parts of my memories, am I still my whole self? That's not the me that I am now, etc. So it's very interesting. But yeah, so the last question that we usually ask is, um, what was one thing that you would want people to remember about the Vietnamese refugee experience or one thing that people could do? Well, you know, I tell my students this all the time. I show up, I'm probably the first refugee they've ever seen because I'm in New York, right? How many refugees are running around doing school visits? And then I keep trying to tell them that just because you read about my refugee experience in Inside Out and Back Again does not mean that every refugee you meet, Vietnamese or not, will have the same experience. You've got to diversify the experience of this huge group that are called refugees. Within my own family, I tell them, we all ended up in Alabama. We all had the same mother. We all ate the same food. We all lived in the same house. But I can tell you that one of my brother's experience in Alabama was vastly 
different than mine. I was hiding in the bathroom, eating my lunch. He was riding around in a motorcycle with a snake around his head and dating all the cheerleaders. So there you go. You don't know what's going to happen to people when you put them in certain places. So I think he would, if he had written his own story, it would be like, oh my gosh, I had a great time as a refugee. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. So again, we have to allow people complexities. So yeah, take it from that. One refugee you meet is going to be completely different than the next refugee you meet. And isn't it the same with overall people? So allow complexity and don't Mm. assume because you're probably wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for bringing the energy. I think think you brought it sufficiently. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Vita Families podcast with Tang Ha Lai, who I thought offered a really fresh perspective on not just how to heal from this this experience of being torn away from your homeland and even your family as a refugee, but also on the importance of language and roots and memory in that process of healing. So if you're interested in tuning in to more episodes of our podcast, please follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. And thanks so much as always to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music. See you next time.